This morning, in Revelation chapter 18, we come to a chapter which is, I assure you, much more straightforward, much easier to understand than chapter 17. So if you were giving up, let your heart revive. In in chapter 17, we saw the, the great harlot city of Babylon was destined to be judged, burned with fire, metaphorically. And by way of reminder... By way of reminder, Babylon is first and foremost Rome. But she's also a figure, we've seen this, she's a figure for all world systems of seduction and idolatry, especially, and this will become more important later, economic idolatry. And so in chapter 18, we come finally to her actual, not her predicted, but her actual demise. Though this morning, we don't quite get there. Um, we'll look only at verses 1 through 8, and we'll make three points. They're on the back inside page of your bulletin on the outline. Prediction, separation, and repayment. So first prediction, this is Revelation 18, verse 1. John sees an angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth is illumined with the angel's glory. So the angel reflects, the angel's clothed in the divine splendor, the divine glory. And that glory radiates out and it lights up the earth. The glory here anticipates the glory that will fill the new Jerusalem, the coming temple city. The true bride who stands over against the Babylonian harlot. Glory is an eschatological word. Glory, light, splendor, radiance, these sorts of words in the Bible point us toward this coming glory and this coming splendor. That's why the earth is illumined with this glory here. Babylon's fraudulent glory has to be removed if the glorious city of God is to descend. And that's already hinted at here. You are destined for glory. That's why Paul will say things like, God called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So in verse 2, this glorious angel, lighting up the earth, calls out in a mighty voice, and he begins with a dirge taken from Isaiah 21. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. Just like ancient Babylon fell, so seemingly invincible Rome and all future Babylons must fall. And they shall fall. The event is described here as certain. Notice that. Fallen, fallen. In the past tense. It predicts her doom as certain as if all that remains is for John to just narrate the results of her collapse. Which is in fact all that happens in the rest of the text. The rest of chapter 18. And so, her, the result of her fall, her desolation, is described beginning in the next phrase. She has become a dwelling place for demons. John has been doing this throughout the book. He's already told us, look, Rome 
is arrayed in fine clothing, glittering jewelry. She has a golden cup of seductive wine. But he does what he always does again here. He strips all these things and unmasks her satanic nature. She's a dwelling place, a haunt for demons. And then he borrows this language from the Old Testament prophets in the, in the next three or four phrases when the prophets of old would describe ancient Babylon's fall. So, for example, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah says these words. Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals, a horror and a hissing without inhabitant. John is riffing on this. He's creatively reworking this. He says, she shall become a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. Now remember, when John was first given a vision of this harlot city Babylon, this was just in the previous chapter, he was called or carried by the Spirit into the wilderness. And we mentioned there that that's a strange place, the wilderness, to be given a vision of the city of Rome. Right? But the rationale becomes very clear here. The city shall become a wilderness. It shall become inhabited by or a dwelling place of demons and unclean spirits. Again, this city stands in stark contrast to the city of God, which you are inhabited by the Holy Spirit the holy dwelling place of God. So again, John is very clear about this. There are two women. There is Babylon, the prostitute, and there is the bride. She is a dwelling place of demons. You are the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit of the triune God. And the reason for Babylon, Rome's desolation is given in verse 3. All the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. Again, the nations drinking this wine refers to their idolatry. They're consorting with Rome. And we've seen this over and over, but we'll see it again. They sought economic security in exchange for allegiance to the total state. And so they've drunk Rome's wine. And, John says, and in drinking it, they've become blind or numb to the fact that the favors that they're getting from the total Roman state are the favors of a prostitute. And so John is constantly saying this to his readers. The Roman Empire, its wealth and its peace rest on violence and bloodshed and conquest. It is a system of economic exploitation. It provides security in exchange for idolatry and allegiance, for oath-swearing to the emperor. It's a very radical message in the first century. It's unpatriotic. And not only all the nations, but all the kings, the text says, the great and powerful ones, have fornicated with her. I mean, to the average person, just trying to put one foot in front of another in life, right, just spending a Saturday at the marketplace in Laodicea with their kids, it just looks like a system of commerce where we sort of have a patriotic allegiance to the emperor. That's all. To John, it looks like a demonic, bestial monstrosity. 
And the economics of this, the economic motif, comes clearly into view here. Now, remember, all the way back when the the mark of the beast was talked about, we said, and we've said since then, it's an economic mark primarily. You can't buy or sell without it. Well, it comes into view at the end of verse 3 here. The text says, And the merchants of the earth, this is important, this is the first time these merchants are mentioned in the book. There's been a lot about kings, and a lot about the beast, and a lot about the false prophet. So here it's merchants. They're mentioned for the first time, and they will be mentioned a lot in subsequent weeks. They have grown rich from her excessive luxuries. These very merchants, businessmen, traders, they're going to lament, and they're going to mourn the fall of Babylon, because it entails the loss of their own wealth. We'll see that later in the chapter. Now, so here, I want to say a few important things. The imagery here implies, in fact, it demands that the city of Rome has become the center of world trade. And this, this is a picture which is drawn primarily from ancient Tyre in the Old Testament. In both the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel, not ancient Babylon. So what seems to have happened here is that ancient Babylon as an empire gave John the name for the harlot city. After all, Rome rides on or is allied with the the Roman state. But because Rome is the empire as a sort of economic seductress, John draws images from Tyre, ancient Tyre, Because Tyre was the great and prosperous trading kingdom in the Old Testament world. So John switches here language from ancient Babylon to ancient Tyre. So what does this mean? Well, it means at least this for us. Rome and all of these sorts of states conquer two ways. They conquer by armies and they seduced by merchants and trade. The merchants have grown rich from Rome's powerful and luxurious living. Now the text starts to hit just a little bit closer to the home of the American heart. And it will do so over the next chapter or so. And so what is depicted here is that Rome is a market. It's a market which makes the merchants of the world rich. The movement of goods which John will delineate delineate at great length next week. Don't miss next week, because next week is a critical sermon to tie together everything we've said to this point on Babylon. But you have this movement of goods from the provinces, from the ends of the earth, and they serve to enrich the city's political and cultural elite. Rome is a boom town. And this is good for the merchants. Housing starts are up. But as John strongly implies, and will say, the rank and file in the provinces have paid much more than was provided. That's what happens when you consort with a harlot. They have not grown rich. And thus, Babylon's fall is predicted here, and it's going to be lamented primarily in economic monetary terms as a colossal loss of wealth. 
And so the prostitute city, which becomes rich off of her patrons, shall become a desolate, demon-infested wilderness. Rome shall fall. So that's the first point, the prediction. And so what's the advice? What does John tell the churches? What does he tell the, the, the average Christian in Asia Minor? And that brings us to the second point, separation. He hears a vo- another voice from heaven which warns the church. Now, separation here, the coming out, is not spatial. This is not a call to flee a given physical city. It's a call to flee the system of exploitation and idolatry, of economic idolatry, which is already bearing down on the churches of Asia Minor. You just want to be a carpenter, or you want to be a plumber, or you want to build houses, or you want to work in agriculture in Asia Minor? Well, we have a guild. It's essentially a union membership. Now, at the guild, all you have to do is either kiss a statue of the empire, or burn a little incense, or say a little patriotic creed. That's it. That's all. That's what chapters 2 and 3 of the book are about, these letters to Asia Minor. There are warnings to the church saying, the emperor is already forcing you to fornicate with the great city. So, there's a call then to flee this system. So, Babylon, in all of her manifestations, even modern ones, always remains for us a present danger. Having the seal of God, which you have through baptism, having the promise of God's protection does not preclude for any of us the seriousness or the reality of this warning. The Christians in Asia Minor must extricate themselves, think of this, from the economic system in which they are engulfed. Again, it's not a call to physically flee anything. It's a call to be in the world, but not of it. And the reason Babylon is so dangerous and fleeing is so urgent is given in in the next part of the text. It says, lest you partake or you have a share of her sins and receive her plagues. Now, this means that we have a responsibility, it seems to me, to think out our solidarity, our involvement in the economic systems in which we are enmeshed. Very few of us have a stomach for this, including myself. This is an extremely complicated thing, especially in the modern world. But again, there are a few things here that are pretty clear. We can't seek economic security at the price of idolatrous allegiance to the state. We can't uncritically accept our own Babylonian system's wealth as an unvarnished good. We may like markets. We don't worship markets. We're critical thinking people. We're discerning people. It matters, this text says. Now think about this. Again, I don't think this falls into the minds of your average first century Christian in Asia Minor. But John is saying to them, especially to the traders and businessmen among them, he's saying it matters profoundly how you acquire your wealth. It matters who is profiting. It matters who's being exploited. It matters what the people you're engaging in commerce with are doing. You think the average guy in Asia Minor had any idea of how the economics of the empire worked or that he was a pawn in it or that somehow 
hundreds of miles away in the city of Rome, the, the city's elites were getting rich. He's just trying to grind out a living. What are you telling him that he's implicated with the Babylonian whore for? Why should I care where my coffee beans come from? Well, and I say this as someone who naturally does not care where his coffee beans come from. So I'm not speaking as someone who's standing over and above you. It seems to me that John says you should care where the stuff you're made comes from. You should care who's making it, and you should care who's profiting from it. So, there are situations where states or political economies become whores, Babylonian whores, and just to participate in it makes one unclean, John says, and it excludes you from the holy city. Right? These Christians are not going to get to say, yeah, 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 I get all that economic corruption stuff, but I believe in Jesus, so I'm fine. So it's impossible to abandon economic life. But we saw this all the way back in chapters 2 and 3. John is certainly saying to Christians, it might be necessary for you to suffer deprivation or ostracization from your little uh, union cult if you're going to remain in the world but not of it. So, again, not everyone's called to do this, but the Christian church needs to think about the economy or economic models which don't feed Babylonian corruption and luxury and don't feed the violence and the coercion of total states. And John continues in verse 5, he says, For her sins are piled up to heaven. Her sins are, ironically, a new tower of Babel, which is the word Babylon comes from, and that's the, that's the metaphor John's evoking here. And the multiplications of Rome's sins has caused God, the text says, to remember, to act in terms of his covenant, to judge her for her crimes. So, that's separation. The third point's repayment. In verse 6, we have a command, pay her back, or give back to her. It's a cry for justice to God. Give back to her as she has given. Give back to her as she has given. Again, this is the, we've seen this a lot as well. This is the eye-for-eye eye principle. Inflict on Babylon what she's inflicted on others. There's no, there's no disordered vengeance or hatred here. It's a cry for simple ordered justice. But this principle of justice, it does seem to be called into question by the next phrase, repay her double for her sins. You notice that in the text, repay her double for her sins. Later it'll... Speak of making her drink double, mix her a double portion from her cup. Double here simply means to produce a duplicate. That's all it means. To, or to repeat. Give her the mirror image that is the double of what she gave to others. And so the whole of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7 speak about full, equivalent, exact repayment. You see that at the end of verse 6 with the cup metaphor. Mix her a double, a full equivalent. Notice this as well in the text. Babylon ends up drinking from her own cup. The golden cup of abominations which Babylon held in her hand, from that cup she is now made to drink her own wine. And in the drinking of that wine, she partakes of the wrath of the Lord God Almighty. In a sense, the wrath which is visited on her is 
inflicted. She's very blind, though, as this happens. This kind of prosperity is blinding. She says in her heart these words, and these words evoke what Isaiah condemned in ancient Babylon. Isaiah uses these words. We heard them in our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 47 this morning. Isaiah says this, You said, I shall be mistress forever. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. Now you'll notice John is using almost this exact language. He picks this up and he says, Babylon says in her heart, I sit as queen. I sit as queen. She's a harlot, but she sees herself as royalty. This is always how it is. Right? If, you, if you take out that middle section, you know, that glossy uh, magazine section, the Babylon Review of Culture in the Sunday Babylon Times, that section will show you that Babylon's think quite highly of themselves. They think of themselves as queens, not harlots. So does this Babylon. I'm not a widow. I'll always have the support of my lovers and my patrons, the kings and the merchants. I'll never see mourning. She's a picture of Rome's pomposity, of Rome's smugness. Remember, by this time, Rome is already conceiving of herself and calling herself, and you know this, right? The eternal city. The eternal city. And for all of this, all of this self-glorification and hubris, verse 8 says her plagues will come in a single day. Again, this evokes the fact that ancient Babylon, you can see this in the book of Daniel, fell in a single day. Here it just means suddenly, swiftly. All of this comes to pass, and shall come to pass, the text says at the end. Because mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. By the way, you'll find virtually that identical phrase in the Isaiah 47 text as well. God has judged her through his agents. So John, again, reminds us, greatness and might belong to the Lord. They do not belong to Babylon. Babylon is only called Babylon the Great, ironically. So that's the text. I'm going to make a couple practical applications. Um, First, I want to encourage you about something. I've mentioned this before, but I want to be clear about it. It's something important to get. I want to encourage you about the nature of Scripture, that you might be confident in God and in his word. And what I mean is this. Think, think of this situation. This is a dirge. That's what the text is. It's a dirge. Written over the fall of Rome in the late first century while Rome is at the height of her power. Right? She doesn't fall till the fifth century. As I said before, John looks like a crazy person now. She has absolute dominion over the ancient world. She has armies. She has merchants worldwide enriching her. She's threatened by nothing. She's calling herself by this time the eternal city. And there is one elderly Christian prisoner prophet on a rocky island in the Aegean Sea. And he gets this vision. 
And he declares hundreds of years in advance that it is over for Rome. This, so this is part of the reason the book of Revelation is so obscure and so confusing and so bewildering and lacking in what God wants it to be for the church, lacking in comfort and encouragement, is that people don't see that this is a prophetic word which has already demonstrably in history come to pass. People are always trying to figure out whether there's some Apache helicopter, right, or some United Nations meeting or something with Putin and Ronald Reagan in the text. And so the church has been deflected into all of these curiosities, missing the main thrust of the interpretation. This is a prophetic word which has demonstrably in history come to pass. I don't know what an unbeliever would do with this text. We have 18 chapters of John predicting the demise of the Roman Empire. So don't forget this, please. This is not just a bunch of crazy symbolism. This is prophetic scripture. It's the word of God. Second, the second thing here is we need to see that God judges Babylon. Not just for the persecution of the saints which is a central motif to be sure, but also for her economic lust and her luxury. And this, as I said, will be a fact we'll see a lot more of in the next few weeks. And this is what brings the critique of Babylon closer to home for us as Americans. right? And this is what causes us to maybe stop and take a look at some of the economic assumptions which drive our lives, assumptions which we think too often are just beyond critique. So I'll leave it at that for now and encourage you to come next week. The third thing here, and again, very practically, I think, is we're called to separate from ungodliness. Separation is a big part of this text, whether it's economic or otherwise. And Paul uh, uses this ancient prophetic language of separation from Babylon of the church in 2 Corinthians 6. So here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. Therefore, now remember, this is the Christians living in Corinth, its own little Babylon, its own little sort of daughter of Babylon, Rome. Paul says this to them, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them. Touch no unclean thing and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So this same mighty God, the Lord, judges Babylonian cities and systems in our day, and we must not share in their sins and their plagues. If we separate ourselves from these things, then later, as we'll see, the fall of Babylon is a cause of rejoicing. But if not, it is a cause of great mourning. The merchants that don't separate themselves weep when Babylon falls because their trust and their hope is in the Babylonian economic militarized system. If we separate ourselves from Babylon, if you separate yourselves from the seductions of this age, we become then not a desert haunt for demons, but the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit of God. You are the temple of God. Continue to separate yourself. If we separate ourselves from Babylon, then we are at the very heart of what the endurance of faith and witness mean in this book. 
And finally, let me say one last thing about separation that I think is important. Because Babylonian ethos can defile us all. And if we've been defiled by Babylon, we need to remember this. We need to recall that the God who remembered her iniquities in this text promises in the new covenant that he will remember your sins no more. That he will remember his covenant and his mercy. In other words, that there's a remedy. Right? There, are, there are no people who are untainted by the Babylonian ethoses of their age. And so for you and for me, we, we see that Christ has borne the double portion, the duplicate, the exact repayment for the sins that we deserve. He has drunk the cup of wrath in our place. He has received the mirror image, the exact duplicate. And so this is good news. It's good news because we who may have been and who are still subject to being defiled by Babylon can be renewed and washed and separate again. In this Christ, there's cleansing for the sins of those who've been defiled by Babylon. This is not a one-time thing. And thus, there's fresh starts. He revives his work. He gives us new strength in the battle to flee and to forsake and to come out of Babylon. And we praise the Lord for that. Otherwise, this wouldn't be very good news. But his mercy, the power of that blood, is infinitely greater than the power of Babylon's seductions. Amen.